1: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today
2: welcome to the new books network welcome everybody i'm jack petranker i'm a host for the spirituality and mindfulness channel for the new books network and we're here Today to talk with Seth Zuiho Siegel, who is the author of a new book called *The House We Live In*, it came out in 2023, and we're looking forward to the conversation. So, Seth, welcome. And um, good to see you, Jack. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get we'll get right into it. Um, so, um, tell me something about your background, or tell our audience something about your background. Um, kind of a short biography I guess
0: okay well well first of all I'm a clinical psychologist um I was director of a psychology program at a large urban hospital and was on the Yale School of Medicine clinical faculty for about 30 years um and I just have like a I'm just a little bit into psychology now I don't practice anymore but I still write about it so I I have a monthly column in the mindfulness research monthly which uh comes out every month and um I'm I'm a a uh, on the review editorship of the humanistic psychologist so I still have a a toe in the water when it comes to psychology but I'm also an ordained Zen Buddhist priest I run a Zen community here in Westchester New York Um, I'm a guest teacher of the insight meditation uh New York Center uh and I'm I'm also uh on the contribute I'm a contributing editor to Tricycle the, the Buddhist reviews so that's my kind of main role right now as a kind of a zen buddhist priest
2: right so so um how does that fit into to the book i mean what what led you to write the book and how does it tie into your background
0: well there, there are a couple of things that led to my writing the book um as i think you know jack i wrote a previous book in 2020 that was looking at buddhist philosophy and aristotelian philosophy and trying to find some common ground between them in terms of what's the nature of the good life for for people and um, as i've learned more and more about as a zen priest as i've learned more, and more about chinese language and culture i've started to read the confucian tradition you know confucius and Mencius and shunzi and Xi and wang yangming and, and, and going forward from there and I became impressed about the fact that, that there was a great deal of commonality between the three different traditions, despite their many differences as well. And what I wanted to do is look at all three of them and do a kind of cross-cultural philosophical analysis and try to see what they all had in common to say that might be something that's useful for us today as, as modern people. I, I don't want to, uh, to bring those forward just as they were, but I want to see if these are resources for, that we can use today in terms of understanding what virtue and wisdom are. So that was one strand but the other strand was just living in the turmoil that's the united states right now and 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 i might say the world order as well and um the basic question about how does a pluralistic society with people from many different um uh, racial and economic and ethnic and religious backgrounds with different beliefs about what the good life is how do they manage not to kill each other how do they manage to somehow get along reach compromises uh and and fight fairly about their differences. And, and uh, that's, to me, a major question. And, and along the way, I have been reading a lot of John Dewey and reading Dewey's ideas about how social change occurs. And And I, would, and I wanted to tie that into the book too, that, that, um, that the kind of ethics and morals and values that we have are not handed down since time immemorial. They're things that change and adapt to new situations, but that that process of change and adaptation is one that takes a long horizon of time. And i wanted to give that perspective as well in the book
2: okay great so you're that's a lot of strands that you're weaving together do you think did you come away at the end with the feeling that it worked
0: um well does it work i think that the vision that i have of what the good life is in 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 modern society and the vision of the virtues and the kind of wisdom that contribute to living well both individually and together collectively i think that that vision works for me. The question is, how much can people look, come to agree? I mean, I tried to make it as transcultural and transsectarian as I could, but but how much can you can you get enough people to agree on something like that, that it can really uh, make some kind of change? And I guess one of the other authors I've been reading recently is uh, is, is Reinold uh, Niebuhr, the Protestant theologian, who is very pessimistic about the degree that which people change. He says the biggest pe- problem for people is not their ignorance but their selfishness. <laughs> That you can instruct people all you want about what's a better way to live, but if it's against their perceived interest, self-interest, it's very hard to get them to budge. So, I don't say I'm optimistic about that, but uh, but I think that if more and more people could adopt this as a way of looking at things and a way of valuing things, I think we would we would be would be better off. It's just a question of how to get people to do that,
2: right? A big question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I I want to quote from your preface uh, where you. <laughs> You say, this book's central thesis is that liberal, pluralistic, multicultural democracies require a broadly accepted ethical framework that must be to some degree, at least some degree, transsectarian and transcultural. So you've already talked about some of that. But Mm -hmm. I I think what this brings in is the idea that there has to be a, a... shared or at least broadly accepted ethical framework so so is that kind of the way you see the book unfolding is that what you're trying to do in the book
0: yes i'm trying to make a case that this is an ethical framework that many if most people could agree on today if they thought about it and that if we all looked at things this way we could really we could make some significant changes in the way that we're functioning as a democracy
2: yeah Okay, so so the way you approach that, so we're starting to get now more into the into the substance of the book. Um, the way you approach that is is through um, bringing together these three strands of virtue, wisdom, and flourishing. You have chapters on each of those, and then you have a, fl- a chapter at the end on on connecting, um, on on coming together. I guess you could say. Um, so. Um, can you say something about how virtue, wisdom, and flourishing connect?
0: Yeah, I, I think first of all, that virtues are only virtues because they either contribute to flourishing in one way or they actually constitute part of flourishing in one way. But you need to have a larger vision of what the good life is to understand why the virtues are necessary for it and how they help in that way. Um, so, for example, if you're looking at the Buddhist path, um, compassion is practice of compassion is both a way to get to become a Buddha. But once you are a Buddha, it's also one of the qualities that a Buddha has—you know, kind of an unlimited and universal compassion. So we want to talk about the virtues as both leading to a better life, but also exemplifying that better life once you get to whatever that endpoint is. So I think we need some kind of vision of what, for us as modern people living in a pluralistic democratic side, what, what does flourishing mean for us today? And and I think that's an important question because a lot of us are living lives that don't contribute, to, that don't lead to flourishing. They're pursuing values, for example, that are promoted by the culture that don't really make people happy in the long run. Uh, and people would be better off if they valued something else instead of what they're pursuing right now. So we know from a great deal of psychological research, for example, that pursuing external goods like wealth and beauty, for example, does not. people who pursue those are not happier than people who, who prefer um, benevolence and cooperation and fairness, for example as goals that they want to want to pursue right? those people are actually happier and we could all agree that if we weren't so much co- uh, focused on concentrating wealth and were more focused on being benevolent and fair to other people that we'd probably you can see easily how that would lead to a better off uh, situation for all of us so so I mean I, I I think that's the thing I wanted to do is to kind of tie the virtues in and also wisdom in with what it means to flourish and um and I kind of enumerate a set of seven virtues that I think are universal to all cultures um that are and and kind of point out how they are how I understand them and how they're also connected with flourishing and then I also look at the question of wisdom and I look specifically at Aristotle's idea of practical wisdom and what does that really mean because Aristotle never really defines it at all is that a single faculty or is it a whole constellation of intellectual qualities and so forth and so I try to break that down too I think that's an area where we're having a great deal of trouble right now and people discerning what's true and what's false, uh, what to, who to believe, who's a reliable source and who's not a reliable source, what constitutes evidence and what doesn't constitute evidence. I mean, these these are questions that we're we're are troubling our society every day right now.
2: Yeah, they certainly they certainly are. So um, that list of seven virtues, I, I don't think I'll ask you to list all seven unless you'd like to. Uh, but um, you do draw on other sources besides the Buddha and Aristotle and Confucius. At least you mentioned some some other sources. And in the end, you come up with a kind of idiosyncratic list. And I, I assume I assume that's because uh you felt that, that that was the one that worked for this society at this moment in time.
0: Um well what, what I found was that I think that the virtues that and and the idea of wisdom that's exemplified in all three of the ancient traditions that you can also find them today in other traditions as well it's not as if uh, I mean we can find them in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions we can find it in uh, the humanist traditions we can find it in the African uh, Ubuntu tradition I mean no matter where you go the same kind of values are extolled and talked about and you find them in the New Testament the Old Testament as well and Rabbi El. You know, wherever you look, you find them. So that's what I want to point out, too, that although I've drawn them from these ancient sources, they're really kind of universal. Mm -hmm. And
2: and one of the things you point out, and I I think of this as an Aristotelian point, is that virtues very often consist of going to the midpoint between extremes. So could you say something about that?
0: Yeah. Um, So, for example, Aristotle talks about courage as a virtue. Uh, And what he says is courage is the midpoint between um, rashness and cowardice, okay? You don't want to be someone who rushes off into every battle whether it makes sense enough, you know, even if you're a a minor force that's, you know, that's destined to lose the battle and everyone's going to get killed. That's not, doesn't make sense. You want it to be in, in, you want to use wisdom to moderate courage and tell when it makes sense to fight or when it makes sense to retreat. And it's the same thing with um, generosity you want to be generous to friends, you want to be able to give to charitable causes and so forth, but you don't want to give so so much away that your family becomes impoverished, for example, where you no longer have a home to live in. Um, so you have to find a kind of a balance between uh, between all of these qualities. And it's the same thing with conscientiousness. You want to be conscientious enough to, to do, if you're an air traffic controller, you want to really pay close attention to everything that's happening. You don't want to make mistakes. You want to be very conscientious but you don't want to be so conscientious that you become like a Type A personality or become uh, an obsessive compulsive. Nor do you want to be so lax and relaxed that you know you, you just kind of drift through life purposefully. You want to find that midpoint, that sweet spot. I I suppose
2: in part that's um, because you're talking about virtues as they're practiced by people living in everyday society. Because it does strike me that you know Buddhism, which is what I'm familiar with. Um, You know, you do go to extremes if you if you enter a monastic community or, you know, you basically I mean, there's so many stories of the Buddha who does sacrifice everything. That's right. But but so the moderation part is partly just, okay. we live in this society unless we're going to withdraw from the society and withdraw from all of the relationships that we've established it makes more sense to approach these things in moderation is, is is that a fair statement
0: that is a fair statement and and I also am uh I don't talk about that very much in this book but I've talked about it elsewhere that I'm, I'm fairly critical of the monastic ideal I I don't think it's something that most of us should be aspiring to I'm, I'm not saying that it's not right for some people and and it may even be inspiring that there are such people in the world who do this and they point out our own limitations and that we could do better at what we're doing. But I don't recommend it as something everyone ought to do, or most people ought to do.
2: Right. Well, it would lead to the speedy demise of, of everybody if, if people all became celibate, right? So that's so right. There's that's that.
0: Right. <laughs> Which may be good for the planet. We don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. That's the final solution to climate, the climate emergency. Right. Um, OK, let's not, let's not try to go there. Oh. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um so at one point in the book you you offer a program for developing the virtues you say take a week and really focus on each one is that something um you've worked with have you had in, you know in your community or for yourself or um or is it just how, how did that idea come up and and what kind of um experience have you had with that
0: uh oh well I haven't done it quite like it is in the book but I've done it for example with the 16 bodhisattva vows where I might take a month on each one and think about what it means how much am I living up to it, how much am I not and what does it mean when I'm not uh does it mean that I have to try harder does it mean I have a wrong idea about it you know just really trying to explore that uh and and I've I've done that as well with um with the with the perfections the paramitas you know where I've worked on one for a while and, and so what I think is really helpful is to uh, and I've done it with also with the um with the five lay precepts for example where you know I might uh I might work on just one like what does it mean not to kill okay well wait a minute I if I'm if I have tuberculosis I'm going to take an antibiotic and kill those bacteria you know or if I have termites in my house I probably will get some kind of insecticide and not allow my house to crumble what is it what, my white blood cells are killing you know, bacteria all the time. I mean, what does it mean not to kill? And so that becomes a, a koan in the, in, the, in the Zen tradition. Um, and it really becomes a question of uh, how, how little killing can I do, you know, and still feel like I have a life well worth worth living. And um, I mean, even when you're talking about eating, you know, do, do you, are you a vegetarian or not? If you, even if you're vegetarian, you're killing vegetables and so forth. There's a this whole question about where are your limits and where's the wise place to be. And I think that's always a process of discovery and exploration. I don't think there are hard rules that say this is the rule I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow for my entire life. It may be that we change in our understanding it over time. But I think it's it's always worth exploring. And the same thing with lying. You know, there are times when lying makes sense. You know, when the the Gestapo comes and asks you, "Are are there any Jews hiding in your house?" The answer is no. You know, even if there are. Or if somebody shows you a picture of their baby and they say, look at this, and they, you don't say, oh, what a wrinkly looking baby. You say, what a beautiful <laughs> baby. Isn't the adorable. You know, there are times when little white lies actually are the right thing to do. Um, there are other times when even little lies are exactly the wrong thing to do, though. And so I think that's a whole process of lifelong exploration, you know, of dis- discovery. Um, there are all kinds of lies, for example, that aren't really harmful, but we tell them to exaggerate something that happened to us to make us make a amusing story or to make ourselves look a little bit better or a little bit less worse you know these little tiny distortions that we do all the time how much are they really necessary for our lives maybe maybe, maybe. so i think each time that we find ourselves telling an untruth we can ask ourselves the question was that really necessary um, if i were in the same situation again would i want to do that again if do i want to uh, contact the person i lied to and make and make an apology to them or is that not necessary you know these are all areas for very rich exploration, and I think it's the way we grow. One of the main things I got out of the Confucian tradition is the, and and this is true also for Aristotle and the Buddhists, though, is that is that moral growth, the virtue, virtuous growth, is a lifelong process. There's never a point in your life when you're done. So Confucius has a famous quote, for example, where he talks about each decade of his life up to his seventh decade, and how his understanding of morality changed in each decade. Mm. Um, so I think that's the question for us, are we growing? I mean, it's not as if uh, moral development ends in late childhood or early adolescence, and then we're set for life. We always have a new voice to hear from, or a new, a new problem that arises that causes us to look at things differently. And this is how we grow, by, by, by looking at these problematic aspects of what we believed in the past and trying to understand them better.
1: That's shipstation.com with the code P-O-D.
2: So when you're talking about virtue, um, you say that, that all three of the traditions that you're relying on uh, practice or, or advocate a kind of ethics that is what is called by modern philosophers virtue ethics, as mm-hmm. as opposed to, say, consequent utilitarian ethics or um,
0: deontology rule based,
2: yeah deontology i was going to try to avoid that word not to scare people off but oh. <laughs> but um yeah rule-based ethics deontology um so um do you do you think i mean that's your approach too then is basically ah you know to cultivate the virtues clearly because that's one of the main themes of the book um but doesn't the consequential i mean there's always the question of whether the consequentialist view the utilitarian view has to play in at some point
0: well well it does i mean if you're evaluating your actions and you're finding out that you had an an intention to do something but actually the absolute opposite occurred inadvertently you have to learn from that you don't want to keep on doing the same thing again even what you even what you're doing is harmful (laughs) so yes i mean it matters a great deal whether your actions are actually harmful or actually beneficial or not but um but i don't think it can be the only uh the only only measure measuring stick that we use i think i think some things are just good in their own um without having to wonder so much about the consequences you know uh, know.
2: i I suppose the utilitarian part comes in partly with this idea of the virtue being a midpoint you know because you know you might think well virtue is a virtue i've got i've got to do that Um, but you're aware of the consequences use the example of rashness and
0: courage yeah, too much courage is rash or too much honesty is rude you know and right, so far,
2: right 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 exactly yeah
0: too much some... too much justice is merciless you know mm-hmm. and so on you know
2: mm-hmm. right yeah there's a a great line in a paul simon song about uh, there's no tenderness in your honesty
0: that's yes that's a... exactly right
2: yeah um so when you come to talking about wisdom, uh, you you start off at least by by saying that you know there's received wisdom and then there's practical wisdom, the the phronesis, as Aristotle terms you Now I am scaring people off. Yes, um, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's emotional intelligence. So uh, would you say that there has to be a blend of those three?
0: Well, I I, I, I talk about emotional or social intelligence as part of. Uh, practical wisdom it's its one part of it but not all of it um so so i just wanted to be clear that when we're talking about wisdom we're not just talking about being able to use the hypothetical deductive method you know mm-hmm. and and be able to know logic the way that aristotle for example understood logic um, but there's more involved in it there's there's a mindfulness involved there's the wisdom of the body that's involved uh, and there's also a whole kind of uh being able to read social situations And there's a whole set of skills about how to deal with other people effectively, you know, that are also part of practical intelligence for for Aristotle's definition of practical intelligence was doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very much like the Buddhist idea of right speech, you know, that that it's not that speech not only has to be gentle and well intentioned, but it also has to have the uh, positive effect. You know, if, if if some piece of truthful truth that you're giving someone else isn't going to be useful to them and just going to raise hostility, it's not the time to say it. So you have to. It's that whole kind of question of being able to judge, you know, uh, practically what the effects of your action are going to be.
2: You also talk about about the importance of speaking from the heart, and when I read that, I thought, well, that must have to do with your practice as a clinical psychologist. That, that <laughs> that's pretty fundamental. Is is, is that? is that
0: right it is. yeah but it's also I think true of Buddhism as well that you know speaking from a very authentic place um mm-hmm. speaking a kind of truthfulness that's that comes out of a kind of a beneficial intention mm-hmm. to others in the world
2: yeah and I suppose wisdom has to do then with connecting to that place in your heart where you can speak authentically
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um absolutely but I guess the other thing I want to say is that for, the other thing I got from Confucius, and this is true for Buddhism as well, he he said that of all the virtues, there's one that's like the prime virtue, and that and that's benevolence or, or human heartedness or humaneness. There's a kind of a kind of sense of goodness, of intent and purpose towards other people, and a natural affection and caring and tending for to others that he says is like the prime virtue. And I think that's true for Buddhism as well when Buddhism talks about loving kindness and compassion as the prime virtues. Yeah. No. And and it's related. You it, you you have
2: a a section that I particularly liked on on wholeheartedness. Now that comes up in the chapter on flourishing, which we haven't so much talked about yet. But um, I, I would think that those come together. You know, that again, acting from the heart and and wholeheartedly, and then being wholehearted in your engagement with others. Right. So that's where the benevolence and compassion comes in
0: yeah and 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 the whole heart in this really comes from the whole the whole buddhist tradition the whole zen tradition of of being present in the moment but being authentically present in the moment so that when you're with another person you're authentically with them in that moment in a kind of an i-thou relationship right um and that certainly comes both from my my past as a psychologist and also from my past i also uh, worked for a number of years as a chaplain in the hospital and the idea that you're just meeting someone you've never met before Ever. And you're only going to be with them for a certain short period of time. It's not like you're going to see them for weeks or months like a psychotherapist. You have one time, one meeting. Okay. And the question is, how can you make this an authentic thing that's transformative for this person? And it, it means both of you find some way to speak directly from the heart in that moment. Right. And it's transformative when it happens, it really is.
2: I'm tempted to tell a story but this is not about me this is about you so I I will resist that temptation
0: um let's talk about the um I want I want discussion. to say one thing. I want to say oh, one sure. thing, thing about wholeheartedness that that the other thing is about is about um savoring so to speak the events that occur within each moment giving them some attention because I think a lot of the richness of the texture of life comes from our ability to be present not in our heads somewhere but to be actually there with whatever is happening and that's why i included in the chapter on flourishing because flourishing means more than just making some accomplishments or having some relationships but it means being fully present and wholeheartedly present with all of that if we can live that wholehearted way that transforms our entire life in in magical ways i think yeah that's nice
2: so so flourishing so again we'll we'll use a a scary greek word eudaimonia. um Mm -hmm which is, is the Greek word that gets translated usually as flourishing. Um, do you think that that's different in the different systems, or do you think that they can be treated collectively?
0: It, it is different. So, uh, you know, I talked about this in my previous book a bit, the difference between enlightenment, for example, and eudaimonia. There are um, there are aspects of the Buddhist model of how, how well we can live that go well beyond eudaimonia. So there's a belief that we can kind of reach this kind of, I would say, transhuman state where we've transcended the problems of ordinary life and ascended to some higher level in which um, there's a perfection of well-being as well as a perfection of goodness and decency in your life. Um, Aristotle is much more practical about that, he says, I don't think, I don't think that's really possible for most, certainly for most people, not for me, he would say. You know um we can we can always do better than what we're doing but there's no end point of perfection that we can reach and of course there are parts of the buddhist tradition um uh, say that as well that that there isn't any final enlightenment there's enlightenment beyond enlightenment you know uh dogen talks for example of going beyond buddha for example buddha beyond buddha there's always no matter how big your awareness is or your understanding is or your compassion is it's always possible for it to be more there's no there's no final endpoint and life is a journey towards that mythical hypothetical endpoint that doesn't really exist you know um, so yeah I, th- I think that there are aspects metaphysical uh, aspects and ontological aspects of, of enlightenment for example enlightenment in Buddhism means the end of transmigration you know from lifetime to lifetime uh, it it involves some kind of ontological commitments to there being some existence beyond the bodily existence for example and those are things that aren't part of eudaimonia so I, I think it's possible to separate them out but there are also things they have in common so i don't want to i don't want to say there i would say that yin is like a milder <laughs> a milder level of enlightenment <laughs>
2: okay and and the excuse me <laughs> enlightenment light light and okay. light yeah um so what about the distinction and and this will start to get toward the kind of social dimension of of what you write about um Between social flourishing and individual flourishing, I mean, you know, it seems like one of the things you say, I I think, and maybe we'll talk about that more later, is that that, um, one of the goals of society should be to promote individual flourishing. But but there's also the question of the whole society flourishing.
0: Absolutely. Well, first of all, as an individual, you can't flourish, really, if the rest of society isn't flourishing. If you're living in the middle of civil war and discord and climate change and everything else there's no way that you can really flourish uh even if you're at the apex of the economic order you know and you have more money than anyone else uh if the whole society is in disarray you have to hire bodyguards to make sure that you're not kidnapped or your children aren't kidnapped you know if everyone is if everyone is doing what they ought to be doing in a society then we're all flourishing if if one group isn't flourishing and it's going to cause um, an insurrection against the power of the wealthy and so forth That's not really flourishing either. So I think we have, I think that's the first thing I want to say that we want to live in a, in a, in a society in which there isn't civil disorder, where people find ways to kind of manage their disagreements, where people don't cheat each other and steal from each other and kill each other. And you know, life isn't as Hobbes said, you know, a war against everyone, against everyone. We want to live in a society where judges do their job, where policemen do their proper job, you know, where where uh, bankers don't discriminate. You know, we want, we want that kind of world. And so I, so I think um, we, it's our job to do everything we can to, to see that the world we live in is that kind of world where everybody has the opportunities to flourish in the way that makes the most sense to them, as long as their vision of flourishing doesn't cause undue harm you know, to other people that we care about, you know? So, so that's the vision I want to provide. And it's kind of, it's kind of uh, John Dewey's definition of democracy which is democracy is a, is a form of organization, which everybody works together to create the conditions for maximum flourishing in everyone in the society. Right.
2: So, so um, I do want to talk about that, but maybe we'll put it off just a little bit. I I, mm. I want to um, I want to go into the one of the things you say, which is that part of flourishing uh, consists of of making a connection to something greater than ourselves.
0: Mm. Yeah, one of the dimensions of flourishing I talk about is the dimension of meaning, that our lives have to feel meaningful to us, and, and lives can be feel meaningful in all kinds of ways. But for most of us, for the average person, for me, <laughs> I'm speaking for everyone, right? For me, meaningfulness means um, that the people that I come into contact with most frequently feel that their lives are better because I'm present in it in some kind of way. It's kind of like the uh, that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You know if i wasn't here would things be better or worse for most of us that's what it means but for other people it may mean something else it may mean um being part of a larger movement in history or a cause of some kind uh you know i think about uh, dedicated revolutionaries or um, uh, i think about scientists working for a cure for cancer or something like that they, they have some kind of larger view of what they're working on that they want to make some contribution to the whole world so to speak and other people get their connection from connection to nature, or a kind of a sense of a cosmic connection to everything. I mean, there are all different ways we can make meaning in the world. But I, but I think I think uh, being deprived of meaning is the worst. You can't flourish unless you have some sense that my life has some kind of uh, connection to a larger story of my mm-hmm. community and of mankind and the future.
2: I suppose some people would say, um, you know, it, it has to do with family and friends and just. You know my connections there, and being able to support the people I love, right? And that's, is... that's,
0: that's that's being meaningful to the people around you. That you're they're better off because we're doing your job in the world.
2: Okay, okay. You you say that that um, flourishing and actually I think you, you say oh, virtue and you know maybe even wisdom. I'm not I don't know um, that they emerge through a process of collective inquiry and and you take that from Dewey you're very specific about that could you say something about that
0: yeah what I would say is that um I wouldn't say okay so the kinds of rules we have about what's the good way to live those have been settled throughout history you know by 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 the general process of you know let's it's good for us not to kill each other you know we, we come to that kind of agreement so historically and we still kind of agree with that for the most part it's a pretty good rule you know uh uh or if we're going to kill people we had better have a damn good reason you know (laughs) that and ones that the people around us would approve of in some kind of way um but anyway whatever solutions we reach whatever conclusions we reach about what's the right way to live they, they can become problematic at some point social structure changes new inventions come about you know think about for example the way the birth control pill changed the way we look at sexual morality in the 1960s and so forth there, there can be some change that happens and then you have to inquire again well is what we used to think still right you know how important is virginity uh, for example before you marry it used to be very important now not so important at least not in western you know modern, postmodern cultures so the question is how does that change how do people's views about what's important change and the, the point is that that's always a matter of contestation you know can people decide that they're transgender you know can homosexuals uh, marry and be in the military okay people used to have one opinion of it that opinion has changed how does it change there's a there's a social discussion that goes on and often that social discussion takes a very long time so for example the question about should women be able to vote took about 75 years to settle. The question about uh, the world agreed that slavery was a normal way of doing things for thousands of years you know all of a sudden in the 1800s that changes. How long did it take for people to change their minds about it? Well again it took maybe 7500 years before and the, the whole world changed at the same time. the Russians abolished serfdom you know around the same time as the American Civil War. So there are changes that are occurring through local and global conversations but they're, they're very it's very slow change. And I think that's the appalling thing is that sometimes the the change has to be slow because that's just the way social processes occur. There's always going to be difference of opinion. People have to argue it out. The way they usually end is not that people change other people's minds, but that one point of view in the discussion uh, dies out and a new generation comes up or some new problem arises that changes everybody's mind and they focus on that instead. you know it's but but it's interesting for example the you know we can talk about problems that get solved peacefully like the question about whether Mormons can engage in plural marriage okay that was a big issue you know when Utah wanted to enter the 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 Union you know as a state it's not a big issue anymore I mean people have different opinions on it but it's not a big issue um should stores be closed on the Sabbath okay that used to be a big issue it's not so much a big issue anymore so sometimes these get resolved over time peacefully And, and other times like in the Civil War they don't get resolved peacefully. So, so that becomes a important question. You know, what can be resolved peacefully and what can I think the current fight over abortion is an example of another contentious issue that that is difficult to see how it can be resolved now. And yet at the same time, I can imagine 10, 20, 30 years from now it may disappear as an issue. There was a time, for example, when it wasn't an issue. Uh, in the year 1900 it wasn't outlawed in any state abortion. Okay, people just had them. Midwives performed them. Then the obstetricians came about as a as a uh, as a um, as a profession, and they were in competition with the midwives, and they were the ones who decided that abortion had to be banned to help, you know, help uh, create their greater power over the midwives. But that's how it began. And then and then in the nineteen seventies, it wasn't an issue that divided religions. At least at least not Protestants from uh, uh, from Jews, for example. Billy Graham wasn't you know universally opposed to abortion. Um, the whole evangelical movement, you know, was open to abortion under certain conditions and so forth, and that changes when, you know, the Republican Party under Nixon decides they want to mobilize Catholics out of the uh, the New Deal coalition, and then it, it gradually becomes politicized, and then it becomes an issue for evangelicals down the line. But but just as things weren't an issue and then become an issue, you know, they can not become an issue again later on. It's a kind of an interesting process. So it's interesting to note that the most liberal abortion uh, law in any state in the United States was signed by Ronald Reagan, for example. I mean, there used to be that Republicans and Democrats did not differ on this issue.
2: That, that is interesting. And it's, it's, you know, the idea that you can take a kind of historical view and say, well, you know, this too shall pass and things are going to change. Um, that would be very helpful. But of course, we're living at a particular moment in time. So,
0: uh, Right. And, and then there's the issue of climate change, which... We don't have time to fix. And at the other time, on the other hand, social processes are slow. And getting everyone on board is a slow process. So we're really in a bind at that point. We may not succeed. Yeah, yeah. that seems
2: that seems right. I mean, sometimes
0: problems grow
2: faster than solutions, right? And That's always true. <laughs> I suppose so. There's always more problems, right? Uh,
0: well the other the other point i make out is that every solution creates a new problem Mm -hmm. you know so uh you invent antibiotics and and infectious diseases go away but now people live longer and get chronic diseases like you know cancer and heart disease so it's uh you always have a a trade-off um horses are a pretty messy way to go about you know they they fill they fill the the streets in new york with manure and so forth you invent the motor car people are very happy you know but then you have to, you have to have an in oil industry and you have to have expensive infrastructure and you have now motor vehicle injuries with you know, brain trauma. And, you know, all of a sudden you have new problems you have to fix then global warming. So every, every solution is only a temporary solution. And, and that was one thing I got from Dewey that every, every solution has to be reexamined later on, you know, to see whether it's still a solution. So, so that's a
2: commitment to that process of ongoing inquiry as a society. Huh?
0: That's right wonder
2: how much how much we really do that i mean it seems to me as you said it tends to happen more haphazardly or when people die out or something like that this inquiry is uh, i don't know how much it's valued in society at large i'm a scientist sure they want scientists to come up with great solutions but but on the social level i'm not so sure
0: yeah and there's also a question about how much change can a society go through it at a at single time without losing its its coherence so um I, th- I think what i mean every every single value we have is open to question or could be and if we if we threw everything up in the air all at once it would be a disaster socially so the good news is we only focus on those that become a problem <laughs> you know but as social change becomes faster because technological change becomes faster you know, then there's a question about how much can we tolerate, how much, you know, how much can we endure without, without going into constant turmoil about what's the right rule that we want to be able to adopt. I suppose that that's, I'm not
2: sure how much you get into this in the book, but I suppose that that's one of the questions that come up, comes up that, that we, we do live in a world where change is so rapid that maybe solutions that have worked in the past or at least have been ideals in the past that people could aspire to maybe they just aren't going to work anymore
0: that's right so in a society like the frontier society of the united states when the only weapon that was available was a front-loaded single-shot musket the second amendment made sense now that you have assault weapons everywhere does it still make sense i mean conditions change and you have to re-look at things again
2: mm-hmm. So maybe that brings us to the, the, um, the last chapter of your book that's called Only Connect. And, and it has to do with how people can coexist in a, in a positive way. Uh, and you talk about having the moral resources to move beyond group loyalty. Um, it seems like that, that group loyalty is becoming more and more of an issue. Right? That's one of our problems right now. People are so committed to their political group maybe above all but but also of course other kinds of connections of you know it, it, i'm thinking of the evangelicals or wh- mm-hmm. whatever um so the question is developing the moral resources to move beyond that i mean i suppose one one thing maybe you'd say about that is well that's what that's where wisdom comes in right? is that a fair statement
0: well, first of all, I don't think it's more of a problem now than it used to be. I mean, I think it's always been the same problem. I mean, I always l- like to laugh about uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner used to have a routine called the 2,000-year-old man. And 2,000-year-old man remembers ancient history. And he says, the first national anthem was, all of the caves can go to hell except cave number 57. <laughs> so I think that's that kind of group loyalty thing has always been a problem. And in fact, if you look at Chinese philosophical history, say, during the Warring States period, about two or 300 B.C., the main problem that all the different philosophies they had like in the chinese they say it was a period of the the, Bi, uh, the hundred philosophies okay so it wasn't just confucianism and you know and and Taoism and legalism and they had many different philosophies but they all revolved around the same essential question which is now that we're becoming a nation state now we're becoming an empire how much do i just have loyalty to my family and my clan and how much do I owe broader society in general? And there's always a conflict about that. And I think, I think that's part of the way we're built uh, as human beings in terms of that, we all have a, a kind of natural tendency to care about others, okay? If a child cries, we all kind of look to it and see how can we soothe that child. Uh, Mencius gives the example of a child about to fall into a well, and you, you see that about to happen, and immediately anyone would feel shock and alarm at that, you know. If somebody steps in a puppy's paw and it yelps, you go, oh, poor puppy, you know. We, you, see, you, see, um, you see people in the midst of an earthquake digging out in Iran on the, on the evening news, for example, and your heart goes out to these people. So there is this natural impulse to care about people, but we care about our families and the people we see face-to-face and our friends more than we care about these distant others. It's just the way we're built. Um, the Confucians would say that benevolence starts in the family and then extends out and that it's a lifetime process of extending it out to other groups. Um, so I think there's a conflict when we, we understand that we all ought to uh, love our neighbors like we love ourselves, and we all ought to be benevolent towards everyone. And we owe a certain fairness to everyone in society. Uh, but we also believe uh, my family and friends first, you know, and when times are flush, uh, it's maybe easy to be generous to other people. And then when there's times are scarce, then you draw the circles around and you, you just protect your your particular group. So, so I think that's the fundamental conflict we have when it comes to justice and fairness and benevolence is how much, do we, how much is it tied to our specific group and how much can we extend it beyond? And I think it's always problematic. It's not, it's not easy to do. Um, I mean, that's one reason why on a news story about a famine, say somewhere, the news story will focus on one family and what they're going through, one child who's starving, because you can identify with that more than a million people starving. That doesn't make any sense to us um or are there resources that can help us do that yeah we have all these stories the story of the good samaritan in the bible or you know there are many stories of the in the buddha's previous life as it great acts of compassion towards other beings um um, we have um i think i think about 30 times in the old testament it says love the stranger as you love yourself not love your neighbor you know, it's, uh, there, there are these resources that enable us to care about other people, but it's still an upward um, push for most of us to do it. I think that's a lifetime project of caring about people who are very different from us. You know, you, you may think you're very good at it, and then you're walking down the street in New York City and you see uh, um, a homeless alcoholic on the street, you know, um, who, who's stinky, you know, and they're asking for a couple dollars, you know, and immediately you're thrown into some kind of turmoil about should I be generous? Oh, he's just gonna spend it on drink, you know. Uh, he's not like us people, why doesn't he get a job? You know. All these all these kind of thoughts that separate me from that other person come up. And and yes, you may make the decision in the end to be generous. And sure, why not? And and you may even make it a practice. Whenever someone asks me, I'll give them something, you know, as a way of enlarging your heart in some kind of way. But there's still it's still a push always to do that. Um so i think it's a problem i think it's always going to be a problem um and uh what we can say is that the solutions to a lot of the problems we have in the world require our extending our cooperation with other people and caring about other people more so that if we're going to solve the problem of um infections that come up like covid in the future it means not just hoarding vaccines for the wealthy countries but if you do if you do that, and the poor countries don't have them, then new new strains just develop in the poor countries and spread to the wealthy countries. You can't segregate yourself out. Or if we're going to solve global warming, it means everyone has to cooperate on it in some way, even if we don't like each other. Or um, if you're going to deal with the problem of terrorism or transnational corporations and not, not paying taxes or whatever the problem is, it takes broader and broader networks of cooperation. You can't just solve problems on your own anymore. So so maybe. Uh, so there's that kind of push that we have to think bigger and think wider and include more and more. Uh, on the other hand, it's hard for us to do. So maybe, maybe we won't succeed at these efforts, you know? Well, well you do make the point, and, and
2: I think maybe this is a good place to bring our discussion to an end. You make, you make the point that sure. We're not going to agree. You know, sure, we, we can't expect to have consensus, um, but the aim is, is, to remain human in each other's eyes. I thought that was really important.
0: Yeah, I spend a lot of time on, on that in the book. Um, how do you talk to people who are on the other side of the divide? And And I think it's important that if we're talking to someone who has a very different viewpoint of ours, our job is not to convert that other person. That never works or hardly ever works. You know, just like no one, I can't imagine a Trump supporter could talk to me and make me become a Trump lover. I mean, I can't imagine how that would happen. But it's the same. But the other side is true as well. I can't convince them that he's a bad person, you know, or an exemplar of a very bad person, that he's a psychopath or something like that. So the question is if we can't convince each other, what do we do? And I think the important thing is we don't demonize each other. That if we talk to each other, if we can find a way to talk to each other, which is open hearted and present and non abusive and non controlling and just try to hear each other's point of view and understand where the other person is coming from we're not going to end up agreeing with them but we'll understand that where they're coming from makes sense from their particular history and their particular environment and where they're coming from and that we can agree to disagree but still say but you know what we're you know we're just still human beings we're not enemies we we may be competitors we may have to, i may have to defeat you you know at the ballot box on this particular issue but it doesn't mean i have to hate you and so the question is, how can you strenuously fight for the values that are important to you without being against other people? And there I'm looking at the examples of uh, the Buddha and Martin Luther King and Mohandas Gandhi and people like that who said, you know, you have to maintain, you're fighting ideas or conceptions or practices, but you're not fighting people. And that we're all, and we all kind of find some way to say, okay, you know, uh, what I know, I know some Republicans now call de- Democrats demoncrats, for example. And that's what we're trying to avoid or, or when trump calls people vermin you know but the left is just as guilty of that as well this, this person is a racist and he's a, you know he's, he's unredeemable because of his particular abhorrent beliefs well you know when i was growing up in my neighborhood everybody was racist to some degree you know um my aunt my aunt harriet for example you know had, had horrible things to say but you know what she wasn't a bad person entirely you know she had abhorrent views we always were arguing with her about them but she was a very sweet person and you know she remembered our birthdays and you know she (laughs) you know she she, really mattered (laughs) she she wasn't cruel to people in her everyday life you know so you have to honor people and and you have to realize that everybody you love has something wrong with them okay and everything that everyone that you know believes something that isn't true (laughs) and uh, we have to be we have to be generous to each other in some kind of way well that is
2: a nice place to end but I realized that I never did ask you something I meant to ask at the beginning, um, which is the title of the book. Can you explain the, how you came to call this book "The House We Live In"?
0: Yes, I can. Uh, it comes from a song I heard when I was in third grade. There was a there was a movie out, I think it came out in nineteen forty five and nineteen forty six that starred Frank Sinatra. It was a short, won some Academy Awards, and it was a, it was a kind of an anti prejudice kind of propaganda film put up by Hollywood called. And the song was The House We Live in. It was sung by Frank Sinatra, became a big hit. Paul Robeson sang it as well. But it cl- includes the verse, you know, What is America to me? And the answer is all races and religions. They're America to me. And when I heard that song in third grade, I said, Oh, yeah, that's the American credo. And I thought everyone believed it in America. So it was a big shock to understand it was really a propaganda piece and that most of a good part of America didn't believe in it, that we still lived. I was too young at that point to understand about segregation in the South, for example, and Jim Crow and everything else. So I understood it was part of a continuing battle in an attempt to include everybody into American society. So uh, I think that's the house we live in. We have, everybody lives in this house. And we have to find some way to get along and order it, you know, and not kill each other. So that was the idea.
2: Okay. Well, that is a good place to end. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I've enjoyed the conversation. And I'm sure that listeners will also. So we will uh, we will close with that. And uh, tell, well, tell me, uh, what's your next project? What are you working on?
0: Oh, I'm in the midst of uh, working on an encyclopedia article for the St. Andrew's uh, Encyclopedia of Theology on, on Western Buddhism and uh, on Western Psychology and Buddhism. So I'm um, finished the first try and that's, that's my new project right now.
2: Okay, great. Well, thanks, thanks very much, Seth. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure.
0: Take it's been care. a pleasure too. Thank you, Jack.